You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. We are going to be working through uh, chapters 8, 9, and 10 tonight in 2 Kings as we're continuing through this study. And uh, we'll be looking at a study entitled Cleaning House, as that is exactly what we will see happening. And I warn you, I do warn you that tonight we are in for a wild ride when it comes to these chapters we will be studying. And I'm really thankful as we get into this study tonight for this first story that we encounter here in chapter 8. And uh, so uh, that's just a, a warning for you. Tonight's going to be a little bumpy, so buckle up. But I'm encouraged by this first story that we have in chapter 8. So I want to just read verses 1 through 6 with you guys tonight uh, to get us started. We'll pray, and then we'll move right along. So if you have your Bibles there, 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 1 says, Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine. And furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. And so the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines. And she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. Now it happened, as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, so the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. Will you guys pray with me, please? Amen. Well, before we get into the carnage that is tonight, we open up with this amazing story of faithfulness honestly rewarded. Back in 2 Kings chapter 4, as Elisha is there moving through the land, we are in, introduced to this, this woman, this Shunammite woman, who had extended hospitality to Elisha and his servant Gehazi. As Elisha was, of course, ministering and as the prophet of God moving through the land, this woman took note of that. And so what she did is when he was in town, she would feed him first. And so he always knew where to get a meal. And then after a while, she went to her husband and was like, hey, I, I want to make a room for this prophet and his, and his servant to stay whenever he's moving through town. And so what, what first started as a meal ended as living quarters there for Elisha and Gehazi. And it was just hospitality, just the love of the Lord through this woman, just coming out in hospitable ways. It was amazing for Elisha. And it was great because Elisha, as he's sitting there one day with Gehazi, he's like, hey, I want to bless this woman. I've been blessed by her. I want to bless her. And so he calls her in. He's like, hey, what would you like? Would you like me to speak to the commander of the army, to the king? What should I do? And she's like, no, I don't want you to say anything to anybody. I'm doing this because I'm doing this. I handle my own business. And Elisha's like, hmm, okay, well, hey, how about a son? And she's like, no, 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 don't do that because I'm barren and my husband's old. So please don't, you know, don't tease me, Elisha, is what she's saying there. And he's like, no, but, you know, this time next year, you will embrace a son. And of course, she does, which is amazing. 
And then as the course of time goes, the son goes out with his father to the field, and there he suffers a head injury. And the son, unfortunately, passes away. And we know that this woman, she, what does she do? She knows exactly where to go. She goes to Elisha. She's like, I'm going to find the man of God. So she goes to him. Elisha comes back. He prays over the boy, and the boy is miraculously resurrected. It's, a, it's an amazing story. Just so good. And now, as far as the timeline of this story where we open up in chapter 8, we're not really sure as to what it is or when it is, but what we know is that Elisha here is talking to the woman, and he, having been given insight from the Lord, says there's a famine coming. And so you and your son, you need to get out of here. You need to go, and you need to go to where you can be safe during this famine. And so she does. She sees this from the prophet as a word from the Lord. She takes it. She goes to the land of the Philistines, and she's there for seven years. Well, after this famine, she comes back to her land and she goes there to the king to uh, make an appeal to him to have her house restored to her. More than likely what happened as would happen in those days, if you moved out, someone would move in. If you left town, often squatters and raiders would come into your household and they would take up residence there and they would claim whatever you left behind as their own. And so what she does is she goes to the king here and she's like, hey, I'm going to go and get my place back. I'm going to go appeal to the king. And wouldn't you know it that as she's on her way that Gehazi is there with the king. Now, again, we don't know the timeline here. So we're not sure if Gehazi, this is, po- this is pre-Gehazi becoming leprous after he is dishonest with Elisha after going to Naaman to get some of the reward that Naaman tried to offer to Elisha that he refused. Or if this is post-leprous, where we see that Gehazi may be in the, maybe, uh, you know, on the outskirts and, uh, uh, you know, maybe... Um, Uh, The king saw him there and was like, hey, I want to talk to that guy. He got curious enough about Elisha's works to say, hey, let's bring the leper at least in, you know, maybe six feet social distancing. I don't know. And he's like, hey, I want to hear about all that Elisha has done. Curiosity got the best of him. And whatever the case, Gehazi is there. He's talking to the king and he's telling him of all the amazing things that Elisha has done. The Lord has done through Elisha. And the text tells us there that as he is speaking, there in verse 5, it says that the moment the woman is walking in, that Gehazi is talking there about how Elisha had been a part of the resurrection of her son, which is just so the Lord. I, I just love this story. It's so the Lord in the timing of all of this right here. And we see that the king there just gives her the floor, and of course, she makes her appeal, she tells the story, and we see that the king, what does he do? He gives her an officer that is is just uh, assigned to her and goes and makes sure that she gets all of her possessions back, and also it says there that she gets proceeds of the field from the day that she left until now. And so she gets her land back, and she also gets compensated for what would have been produced before. It's just, it's just a great story. Honestly, I, I'm so encouraged by this story. And it sets in motion the theme for our study tonight. A theme, really, of a life lived reaping what it sows. This woman had lived a life that was showing the love of the Lord. That was showing the love of the Lord, and she gave freely of her own, believing that God had blessed her, and so she gave hospitably to Elisha, to God's servants. And she got to see blessing from that. Not to say that it's like this magical formula, like she gave this much, so God gave her this much, but because she was obedient to give and obedient to open up her home and just give freely what she had been received from the Lord, she was blessed by that. 
And she was blessed by immediate, uh, immediate uh, blessings there as, you know, as she was giving to Elisha, she was blessed by him coming and staying and being encouraged and being there. She was blessed in, you know, the long term as well. She had a son, and that son was also resurrected from the dead uh, after he died. Like, it was amazing to see the blessings that she had. They were immediate, and they were also throughout the time. But also we see here tonight that she also is blessed by her faithfulness to the Lord. She's blessed even years later. In fact, as she's coming out of this famine, a seven-year-long famine, she is blessed because God had set up everything to where Gehazi is there in the moment. She's coming to the king, and she gets to recount this, and she, we see that it is just, oh, it's just such a blessing. It is a blessing thing that God sets up, and we have talked about this concept a lot as we've studied kings, both 1 Kings and 2 Kings, that our actions have consequences, Consequences that are either to the good as we follow the Lord and seek his will and consequences that are to the bad as we rebel against the Lord, as we seek our flesh and our sin and seek the way of the world. And we're told about those consequences. We're told that consequences are there, that if you follow the Lord, the consequences are there to the good. And if you follow the world and sin and follow after the flesh, the consequences are there to the bad. And the word of God, hear me on this, is honest with us about those. The word of God is honest with us, whether it be through stories we see in the Bible or our own life, that consequences are real. And how we live our life, what we sow, we reap. And for this woman who reaped faithfulness, who reaped or who sowed faithfulness, who sowed hospitality out of a heart that wanted to serve the Lord and serve his servant, we see she reaping blessings. And that's amazing to see. But as we move into tonight, we're going to see this same concept, this same principle played out, but to the negative. As we're going to see tonight, Ahab's family finally get theirs as they are there in the land. And as the Lord had spoken through Elijah to, to Ahab, that his line would end and it wouldn't end well. And so again, we start chapter 8 on a great note, such a blessed story. And now we move into verse 7. And as we're going to be moving through the rest of this chapter, we see some changing of, of leadership in Syria and also in Judah. And we start first with Syria there as we look in verse 7. Pick it with me there. Where it says, Then Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Hazael, take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, shall I recover from this disease? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And he came and he stood before him and said, your son Benadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you saying, shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said to him, go, say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. And then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, why is my Lord weeping? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. Their young men you will kill with the sword. And you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. So Hazael said, but what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. And then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? 
And he answered, he told me you would surely recover. But it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died and Hazael reigned in his place. The first change that is listed in leadership for us tonight is there in Syria. And we see Elisha led by the Lord to go up to Damascus and that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria that we've seen since 1 Kings, is sick. And notice that he sends Hazael to go and inquire of Elisha, which is amazing in and of itself when you think about the relationship between Benadad and Elisha up to this point. Like, through studying the book of 2 Kings, Elisha is definitely not the favorite when it comes to Syria. Like, he's done everything from thwart all of Ben-Hadad's, like, arm, uh, his, his military plans. I mean, you think about it. We studied how Elisha was telling military secrets to the nation of Israel just because the Lord was showing him those. And when, when Ben-Hadad was like, hey, who's, to his own men, hey, who's leaking they were like, hey, the prophet that's in Israel, he knows what you're saying in your bedroom when you tuck your wife in at night. So like, it's not us, it's that prophet. And so we know that he, at one, at one point in time, tried to, tried to get rid of Elisha, to which Elisha, what did he do? He takes the whole army there of, of Syria and leads them to Samaria. Like, if anybody, if you would think of anybody that Ben-Hadad would call on, it wouldn't be Elisha. Like, it absolutely wouldn't be him. But it is so in line that he calls on him. It's so in line with how we see with human nature. When one is faced with their own mortality, they all of a sudden seek after the Lord. They start, they start thinking in etern, on eternal scales. And we see here that what he does is he cries out for, for Elisha. He's like, hey, that guy, you know, the prophet of God, I want to talk to him. I want to know what he has to say about my illness. And so Ben-Hadad sends Hazael to inquire on his behalf. He sends gifts along with him. And Elisha tells Hazael as he comes to him that indeed, what did he say? Ben-Hadad, the king, will certainly recover, but the Lord has shown him that the king would die. Now, this is confusing for us, as, as, it, as it would seem. I mean, he's telling him one thing, but also saying another, like, hey, he's going to get better, but he's going to die. And let me clear this up for us. What Elisha is saying here is that the sickness that Ben-Hadad has is not terminal. He's like, look, He's actually going to die, but it's not going to be the sickness that kills him. So in the original language, it comes across not as, hey, he's, go he's going to get better. No, he's actually going to die. It's, hey, look, it's not going to be the sickness that kills him. The Lord has shown me that he is going to die, though. And then we see that Elisha, what does he do? He starts to stare at Hazael there. He just fixes his stare on Hazael. And the Bible is, is, is funny because it tells us that it gets kind of awkward. <laughs> you know, and we can relate to this. Like, have you ever been somewhere and you just feel eyes on you? You know, you're just like hanging out, you're eating a meal somewhere, and you're like, oh, man, I just, I, just, I just feel it. I just feel like there's, there's eyes on me. And then you look and someone's just like staring at you right there. Like, it, it's awkward. <laughs> it's, it's awkward. And that's what we see here. And we see that Hazael, he's, He's like, okay, this, this is weird. What's going on? And Elisha, he starts to cry. And he's like, what? Why, why are you looking at me? Why are you crying now? What is the deal? And Elisha there, he shares sadness at this reality of what he sees, getting insight from the Lord as to what Hazael is going to do. And he talks there about how he knows the evil, that he's going to set strongholds on fire, and that young men will be killed with the sword. He will dash children and rip open women, which I like just grotesque, barbaric things. 
And we see that it has an ill. He answers it and he says, but what is your servant a dog that he should do this gross thing? Now, this, this demands our attention as well. Because what we see with Hazael here in the English, it comes across that he is kind of like taken aback. Like he's like, whoa, man, like you're calling me, like you're saying I'm going to do that? Like am I a dog that I would do these barbaric animal-like things? And in the English, that's how it comes out. But that is not the tone that Hazael actually has here. The tone there would be him of saying, hey, look, I'm a nobody in the kingdom. He's not denying the barbaric actions that are before him that he would, he's not denying that he would actually do it. In fact, he's saying that, hey, I'll never have the chance to do this. When he says, am I, but a, what is your servant, a dog that he should do this gross thing? He is really saying, hey, look, I will never have a chance to do this. I'm just a lowly servant in the kingdom. I'm just a nobody. I'm just a dog on the street. To which Elisha looks at him and he says, ah, no, but the Lord has shown me that you're gonna be the king. Lord, show me that you will become king over Syria. And thus, that sets in motion what happens next. And notice that Elisha doesn't tell him it's because he's going to kill Ben-Hadad. Like, he doesn't say, you're going to become king of Syria because you're going to go home and murder the king that's currently there. He just tells him, hey, you're going to be king. And then what Hazael does is on him from there. As we know that he goes and he does the exact, uh, he does, you know, what's in line with what's hidden really in his nature. As he doesn't say that he wouldn't do the things that Elisha said he was going to do, but instead he shows that he is very capable of those things as the first thing he does when he figures out that he's going to be king is he goes and he murders the current king. And thus he takes the throne. And we are going to see Hazael do the exact things that Elisha foretells as we continue to study God's word. And Elisha speaks the word of the Lord and it's, as always, going to come to pass. It's going to come to pass, and we will cross that bridge when we study and continue to study the Bible. But the next change that we see is in Judah, as we look there now at verse 16, where it says, Now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. And he was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give him a lamp to him and his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Jorah went to Zair and all his chariots with him. And then he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots. And the troops fled to their tents. Thus Edom had been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. And Libna revolted at that time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Pick with me in verse 25 where it says, In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. And Ahaziah was twenty-two years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, and is the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab, and did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Now he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. 
Then King Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah, and he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Azaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. The king, of, the king Jehoram of Judah that we're seeing here should not be confused with the king Jehoram of, of Israel, but this is the son of Jehoshaphat. They use a lot of, like, those names are very common in that day, and so it can, be, it can be confusing, but if you hang in there, we'll get through this. As we read this section, there are a few key things to notice here as Jehoram starts to reign in Judah, and then Ahaziah also reigns in Judah after Jehoram's death. First, looking there at Jehoram. He is the son there of Jehoshaphat. And as we've studied the book of 2 Kings, we saw Jehoshaphat, Jehoram's dad, often joining forces, we remember, with Ahab. We remember that he would join forces with Ahab in times of conflict with Syria. And we mention that the reason for that was probably on the account of this political marriage of Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, and Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. See, this marriage was not only, got not only got Jehoshaphat almost killed a couple times, we remember that from our studies in 2 Kings, but it also, we see here tonight, sadly, brings Baal worship now, now out of the ten northern tribes of Israel down into Judah. Up until this point in time, indeed, Judah, they weren't the best, but they were still not worshiping Baal. But what we have here now, because of this union, this marriage here, we now have the same thing as Jezebel brought to Ahab and to the northern tribes of Israel, Baal worship. So now Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab, has brought Baal worship to Jehoram, the king of Judah. So now Judah is also involved in Baal idol worship which is bad enough for the rule of Jehoram. And we see more of this detailed in Second Chronicles, and we'll get there one day. But we also see that, of course, Jehoram, he was not just the best military leader either. He wasn't the best practical um, uh, leader of, of, the, of the nation as well. And there is Edom revolted. He, he launched out to, um, to seek to squash that rebellion, which, of course, didn't work, showing that, hey, as you follow the world, you're going to lose hold of things that you have. And so we see there he is wounded, and then he dies, and his son Ahaziah now goes to reign in his place. And just in the same way that we see Jehoram there issuing and bringing in Baal worship into the nation of Judah now, we see Ahaziah, his son, continuing in that way. Ahaziah is going to continue in the ways of his father, who was corrupted by his wife, who was the daughter of the wicked, who was the daughter of the wicked king Ahab, who was the son of Omri, the wicked king of Israel, who's, who, and what's more, we know that Ahab was, of course, married to Jezebel, who brought Baal worship. And it's just, it's honestly, it's kind of exhausting. Like, it's really kind of exhausting when you look at all of this and you see from one person this line that just continues down in this, this, this trajectory of sin and rebellion against the Lord. And it's, it's exhausting and it's saddening and it is so true for us today as well. It is so true and it does us well tonight to be reminded of the reality that sin, our sin, has consequences. And none of it, sin never, ever happens in a vacuum. Sin absolutely has consequences and at times those consequences are immediate and we see them right away. And at other times, they're not. 
Those consequences are prolonged and we don't see them right away, but they are still there. They are still there. And one thing is for sure is again that God is always there and has always been there to tell us that consequences are real. He's always been there to tell us that our sin has consequences. I mean, we know indeed that the Bible tells us there are immediate consequences. We see that played out in the Bible. We see that played out in our real life. I mean, you think about a kid who lies to their parents that they didn't, you know, take the cookie from the cookie jar and they get busted because they have crumbs on their shirt. There's the consequences that are immediately like dished out. At least that's the case at our house. There's consequences that come immediately when you get caught. At our house, it's cocoa powder. But anyways, um, you know, cocoa powder just popped in the mouth. It's horrible. <laughs> so that's what, that's what our kids get for lying. But anyways, we know that there is sin that has consequence. And sometimes it's immediate. And those consequences, what they should do, what the word of God tells us they should do, is they should cause us to like wake up and repent. They should cause us to repent and walk towards the Lord and away from our sin. And God is faithful to forgive us of our sins as we confess them. I mean, that's what we see in 1 John, right? We love 1 John 1, 9, and it's so true because it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like as we go to the Lord and we say, hey, I blew it. He's like, yeah, you did, but I forgive you. Yeah, you blew it, but my blood covered that, so I forgive you. And then we are to take that forgiveness and walk in it. Walk in it, repent, turn 180 and go the other way. Some sin has immediate consequences, and we are to learn from those. But the Bible also shows, and our life also shows, and the Bible is true in saying that, hey, sometimes you don't see the consequence of your sin immediately. But that doesn't mean that they aren't real. That doesn't mean that they don't exist. We've referenced Galatians 6, 7, and 8 many times as we've been studying through the book of 2 Kings. Because as we see truly the principle of that verse come out where it says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows of his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. That principle is so real. And it's meant to key us in on the reality and remind us of the reality that our sin has consequence, whether they're immediate or future, they are there and they are real. They are there and they are real. The Bible is clear that sin, the wages of sin is death. That is all that our sin earns us, is death. Whether it be physical death or spiritual death, hey, our sin has consequence. And the Bible is clear through this verse and through countless others and stories of those in the Bible that are warned about their sin and the reality that it does have consequences. And the fact that sin doesn't happen in a vacuum, it trickles down, it affects those that are around us, those who are a part of our life. Our sin, it rubs off. And that's what we really see here. That's what we see here is Ahaziah here is, this, is this, you know, this last link in a chain, really. And we see here that there's, this, there's, there's sin that has crept from, 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 from really from starting there with Omri and then coming on down for Ahab and then bringing in Jezebel. There's just this chain reaction of sin that is just now going to come to a head and we're going to see being dealt with by the Lord in chapter 9. And before we move into chapter 9, you can't escape what this last part of chapter 8 shows us, where Ahaziah heads to see Joram, who is recovering from battle wounds. We can't escape, really, this setting up, really, this setting up of the pieces on the chessboard, as God has now moved 
Ahab's descendants into one place where Jehu can come in and he can start taking care of the sin issue of Ahab, which is what we're going to see now, God's word coming through as Jehu becomes king, as we pick up there in verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, And Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready, take this flask of oil in your hand, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. Now, when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up among his associates and take him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open up the door and flee and do not delay. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting. And he said, I have a message for you, commander. And Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, commander. And then he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants and the prophets and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. And so I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the king, the son of Ahijah. The dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door, and he fled. Then Jehu came out to the servants of his master, and one of them said, Is all well? Why did this madman come to you? And he said to them, You know, the man and his babble. And they said, A lie. Tell us now. And so he said, Thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then each man hastened to take his garment, put it under him on top of the steps, and they blew trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. As we've been studying through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, Elijah and Elisha were God's instruments to warn Ahab and many of his relatives of the consequence of their apostasy. And they were faithful to do just that. They were faithful to warn him. They were faithful to put their life on the line and to warn him. And if they were the instruments of warning, then Jehu, we are going to see tonight, is the instrument of judgment on the dynasty of Ahab. Back in 1 Kings 19, it was actually Elijah who had been instructed to anoint King Jehu. But for whatever reason, we don't see him do that, and that task now falls on Elisha. So he sends um, one of his servants, one of the sons of the prophets there, to uh, Jehu. And Jehu, in verse 5 tells us, was a commander of the army of Israel. So he worked under Joram. And he is in a meeting there with other captains when Elisha's servant shows up and asks for a private meeting with him. And notice that as they go into the room, that the servant, he not only pours the oil on his head and says, hey, you're now the king of Israel, but he also tells him what he's going to do. He tells him the task that he is to complete for the Lord in wiping out Ahab's line. And then upon saying this, what does he do? He does what Elisha told him to do. He goes outside and he runs. He <laughs> runs really fast. And I, I imagine this being kind of awkward because what we see is we see these, these, these other commanders as the guy runs away. They're like, man, that guy was crazy. Like, what did this madman want? I, I just imagine this guy just kind of like stopping as he comes out of the door. He just like looks around and then just like takes off. <laughs> but that's just my mind. But anyways, Jehu comes out and they're like, hey, what did this madman have to say to you? Like, why did you go in there with him? 
And he tries to play it off. And, you know, he's maybe a little taken back, the fact that he's king now and what's before him as a task. But whatever, he tries to deny it and play it off. And they're like, hey, you're lying to us. What did he actually say? And he says, hey, I'm the king of Israel now. And they immediately pledge their allegiance to him. And they, uh, you know, they follow him. And it's worth noting. It's worth noting that in this time of Israel, Jehu is going to be the only king of the northern region that is appointed by a servant of God. He's going to have the longest reign of any of the kings there in the nation of Israel. And he is the only one who is, who is picked, who is anointed really by God and anointed by one of his servants. And he immediately, if you know, or you're going to see as we get into this, that he not only accepts the position that he's given, but he also accepts the role, the job that comes along with it which is something for us to key in on tonight. As Jehu here is just doing his thing and he's doing what he is, and then in comes this man with a word from the Lord speaking to him, saying, hey, this is what God is calling you to. Notice that Jehu, he's going to step up and he's going to walk in it. We're going to see that he's going to walk in the task that is before him, and that speaks to me so much tonight. To know that what God has called you and I to, what he calls you and I specifically to as individuals and as the church, hey, we're called to walk in that. We're called to walk in the role that God has for us. We're called to walk in the position and the place that God wants us to walk in and to do so faithfully and to do so immediately. You know, we're called understanding that God has for us um, a task and a role for our lives. And he equips us for those things. Sometimes he equips us and then says, okay, now's the time to go. Now's the time to do. And sometimes, you know, there can be things that we know he says, hey, I want to take you to this place. You're here now, but I want to take you here. But as he tells us that, we're supposed to start like looking to him to get us there, to trust that as we seek him, as we walk with him, as we trust him, he's going to take us on steps and on ways to get there. But when he says, hey, it's time to roll, it's time to do this, this is what I've called you to, we need to be obedient to do what he's calling us to. We need to be obedient when God gives us instruction and gives us mission. When he gives the marching orders, we're called to walk in them. And as we do so, we see the Lord work. And that's what we're going to see Jehu now do as we pick up there in verse 14. In verse 14, it says, So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram had been defending Ramoth-Gilead, he and all Israel, against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Jehoram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. And Jehu said, If you are so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it in Jezreel. So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there. And Isaiah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Remember, they're both in the same place now. Verse 17 says, Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company of men. And Joram said, Get a horseman and send him to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? So the horseman went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported, saying, The messenger went to them, but is not coming back. Then they sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. As he says there, Hey, is this peace? They're saying, Hey, are you coming in peace? Or are you, like, what are you here for, man? And he's like, How can it be for peace? Like, he's like, he's like I, I'm here to do a different work. 
get in line. And so they're like, oh, okay, we're going we're gonna to get in line with you now. And verse 20 says, so the watchman reported saying, he went up to them and is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Then Joram said, make ready, and his chariot was made ready. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariots. And they went out to meet Jehu and met him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelites. Now it happened when Joram saw Jehu that he said, is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, what peace? As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. And at that point, Joram, he he knows it's on. He's like, this is not peaceful. And so it says there in verse 23, then Joram turned around and fled and said to Ahaziah, treachery, Ahaziah. Now Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoram between his arms and the arrow came out of his heart and he sank down in his chariots. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, pick him up and throw him into the tract of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore, take and throw him on the plot of the ground according to the word of the Lord. And verse 27 says, But when Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road of Beth Hagan. And so Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblim. And he fled, then he fled to Megiddo and died there. And then his servant carried him in his chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Jehoram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah, had become king over Judah. We stop here and we see this, this, this narrative play out here. As Jehu's like, he's, he's on mission now, he's heading there, and we see that he has them come out. And Joram comes out to meet him, and he's like, hey, are you here for peace? And and Jehu's like, absolutely not. And he tells him why. Joram immediately knows what's up. He tries to flee, and he's, he's done for. Like It says Jehu there. He pulls his bow back at full strength and just takes him out. And we see that there, and it's, 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 you know, it's easy to see exactly what happens. But I want us to notice specifically tonight what we see Jehu do with the body of Joram. What he does there, and specifically where he puts him. You notice the place that they met and where Joram was killed was there at, Na- there at the, the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. If you remember in our study back in 1 Kings, as Ahab there, he sees this vineyard and he's like, oh man, I want that vineyard. And so he goes to Naboth and he's like, hey, give me your vineyard and I'll give you this or I'll give you money for the vineyard. Or I'll give you a better vineyard. And Naboth's like, yeah, no, I, I don't want to do that because one, this is the Lord's land and it's my family's land. So it's not mine to actually give. And so no. And we know Ahab, what does he do? He goes home and he pouts. He goes home and he like rolls over, he sucks his thumb and he's like, oh, I, God, I just want that vineyard. And his wife comes in and is like, you're the king of Israel. Like, you know what? Fine, I'll get your vineyard for you. And we know that wicked Jezebel, what she does is she goes, of course, she she causes she causes some wicked men to rise up against Naboth, and he is murdered. And so then she gives that vineyard over, and Elijah comes to them, and he calls them on that. And that is that tipping point that he says, hey, look, you guys are done. You guys are done. And what he says there to Ahab is that the dogs would lick the, his blood up there on the field. Now, we know that Ahab doesn't die at the vineyard of Naboth. But we see here that prophecy fulfilled 
as his blood, his bloodline is there thrown onto that land and the dogs there lick up his blood. God's word came to pass. God's word here comes through in this first cleansing, you could say, of Jehu's uh, of Jehu's crusade. But it doesn't stop there. Jehu, we see again, it's indicative in the text as it says there, saying that he went up to them and is not coming back, and the driving is like the driving of Jehu, that Jehu was a warrior. He was a furious warrior, and he was on, he was, he was on it now. And we see next that the word of God come to pass as we see Jezebel's final end. There in verse 30, it says, Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window, as, as if that was going to help anything. But anyways, then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, is it peace, Zimri, murder of your master? And he looked up at the window and said, who is on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. Yep. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank. And then he said, go now, see this accursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than her skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore, they came back and told him, and he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, on the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field in the plot at Jezreel, so that they shall not say, here lies Jezebel. Again, I told you tonight was going to be rough. And we see that exact thing here with Jezebel. As Jehu rides up, to, uh, rides up to Jezreel, Jezebel hears of it. And notice what she does. She puts on makeup. She does her hair. She's like, all right, well, he's coming. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe this will work. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll influence another king, right? And uh, that doesn't work. And so she tries to you know, condemn him. And she calls him there a murderous, treacherous person there. She calls him Zimri, who was, you know, if you remember, the treacher- he was the treacherous of, of King Basha there in 1 Kings. And, uh, and so she tries to insult him. And that doesn't work. And what he does is he rides, up to the, to the, uh, he rides up to the wall and he calls out and says, hey, who's loyal to me? Who, who's on my side right now? Throw her down. And we see two or three eunuchs, they're like hanging up there, they're these servants of Jezebel who have no doubt been at the hand of this wicked woman for years. They, they, look, there at, uh, they look there at each other like, well, yep, here we go, and they throw her down. And what the Bible says is, is real, that her, she spat her on the ground and just kind of ex- exploded. So anyways, it's in the Bible. I, I didn't write it. I just report it. And then we see Jehu, what does he do? He just kind of rides over her and goes in and has lunch. Like, that's just, it's, it's insane. <laughs> just, it's just, again, that, that's in the Bible. But what is in the Bible, more so than that, we see this happen here. We see again the word of the Lord coming to pass. And as gruesome as it is, it is a word that speaks to us. As gruesome and as crazy as this is, it is a word that speaks to us that God's word does come to pass. That God's word is true and the things in it are true that we can see, read, and take to the bank. And we're exhorted to do just that. Not one of God's words failed to happen so far and that won't ever happen. God's word always holds true. 
God's word always comes through, and it's always true for us. We can believe in it. And we need to tonight take that to heart. We need to tonight take to heart the reality that God's word always comes to pass. And really, as we do so, it should do two things for us. As we realize and remember that God's word is true, it should, one, it should excite us and it should exhort us. It should excite us and it should exhort us. It should excite us because, hey, simply we can know God's word is true. And that should excite us. That should excite us to know the reality of God's word being true today, tomorrow. It was true yesterday and every day past, and it'll be true every day from now. God's word is true, and that should excite us, especially those of us who have a relationship with the Lord. Like, it should excite us to know that, hey, we're, right now, we're hoping for heaven, right? Like, man, bring it on. We are hoping for heaven. We're hoping for the rapture. Man, we should be excited about God's word and what it says and how true it is. For you who don't have a relationship with the Lord, you're tuning into this tonight and you're like, wow, the Bible's crazy. Hey, you should be excited by God's word because it says that, hey, God loves you and God offers a relationship to you that he bought for you with the blood of Jesus on the cross. That should excite you to know that God loves you and he loves me and he has a relationship that he wants to have with us where we get saved and where we get included on mission with him. Like that's, That should be exciting to us. Exciting that he also says that he's with us, that he's leading us and guiding us. Like the word of God, knowing how true it is, that the word is true and will come to pass, that should excite you and me. But it should also exhort us. It should also put exhortation and unction into our hearts to take the word of God as serious and as a word to you and to me. As a word to us to live by, to be exhorted to live in the excitement, hoping for heaven, but also be exhorted to live in the here and now, seeking to see people saved, seeking to see the will of God here on earth be known so that people know the Lord and walk with the Lord. It should exhort us to know that God has a plan for us, a plan to walk with him, to walk out of our flesh and away from sin and away from the life that he saved us from and wants to save you from today and to walk with him in a life that he created you for. A life created to glorify him, a life created to move with him and walk with him to wherever he would have you in whatever time you may be living in and whatever time that we're in now or will be, we are exhorted to look to the Lord. God's word exhorts us. It exhorts us and we should be exhorted and have this unction, this burden. And we can ask God for that burden to walk according to his word to walk in the way that he calls us, to walk in the direction that he wants to take you and I tonight. And, you know, it does take us going to God's word and going to the Lord and saying, hey, what do you have for me? You know, what, what plan do you have for my life? How do you want me to walk with you? I know that you want a relationship with me. I know that you want me to follow you and give my life to you, to offer my body as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God, which is my reasonable act of service. That's what we see in Romans 12.1. And we find out what that will is. We find out more about God through his word. Where Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know what that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God is. The word of God, God's true word for our life, it exhorts us to move with him. It exhorts us to move with him. And as we know it more, man, we get all the more excited. 
The word of God should excite us ever more as we know that it's true and it's right and it's for us and it's for life. That's what the word of God should do. And we see tonight, even as weird as it may be, that we see it in this you know, tense or in this setting, as weird as it may be, we can see here that hey, God's word is true. It's an example for us that God's word is right and it is true. And what he says is going to happen, it will happen. What he says is going to come to pass will absolutely come to pass. And we need not ignore God's word. We need not ignore it tonight and trust that our God is true in what he says. Well, we see there, of course, that Ahab's line is, is, is started, to, uh, started to get, being gotten rid of. We see there Joram is, is, is taken out, Ahaziah is killed, and Jezebel, finally, she's done away with as well. And Jehu is not done. Jehu is not done. This, this battle-hardened man who is God's instrument of judgment, he is not done. And we're going to read all of chapter 10, honestly, to get it over with. Um, it's God's word, and it's good, but man, it's rough. So we're going to read all of it, and then we're going to talk about it just a bit. Uh, but we're going to get through it in one, uh, one push. So buckle up with me there. In verse 1, where it says, Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders and to those who reared Ahab's sons, saying, Now as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's sons, set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. Basically what Jehu's doing here is he's issuing a challenge. He's like, hey, of Ahab's sons in there, find one, put him on the throne, and then send him out here to fight me, because I'm going to make myself known as the king um, here in the land. Verse 4 says, but they were exceedingly afraid, and they said, look, two kings could not stand up to him. How then can we stand? And he who was in charge of the house, and he who was in charge of the city, the elders also, and those who reared their sons, sent to Jehu, saying, we are your servants, we will do all that you tell us, but we will not make anyone king do what is good in your sight. Like, they're basically like, hey, we're, we're fine, you can be king, <laughs> we don't want any part of that. So verse 6 says, then he wrote a second letter to them, saying, if you are for me and will obey my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. And so it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered the 70 persons and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. Then a messenger came and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. And so it was in the morning that he went out and stood and said to all the people, You are righteous. Indeed, I conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? Know now that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all these great men and his close acquaintances and his priests, until he left him none remaining. And he arose and departed and went to Samaria. And on the way to beth Echad of the shepherds, Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? So they answered, We are the brothers of Ahaziah, and we have come down to greet the sons of the kings and the sons of the queen mother. They obviously didn't get the message yet. And he said, Take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the well of Bethaked, 42 men, and left none of them. Now when he departed from there, he met Jonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? 
And Jonadab answered, It is. And Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and he took him up to him into the chariot. And then he said, Come with me, and see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria, till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. And then Jehu gathered all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu said, Proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it, and then Jehu sent throughout all Israel. And all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man who did not come. And so they came into the temple of Baal, and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. Then he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So he brought the vestments to them, and then Jehu and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal, and said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only the worshippers of Baal. And so they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. And now Jehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside and had said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escapes, whoever lets, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. Now it happened, as soon as he had made an end of the offering of the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, Go in and kill them, let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword, Then the guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal, And they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. Then they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and made it into a refuse dump to this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. However, bummer however, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. That is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight, and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of God of Israel with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. And in those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel, and Hazael conquered them in the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, from Aor, which is in the river Arnon, including Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu, all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel? So Jehu rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place, and the period of Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was twenty-eight years. Jehu is God's man for the eradication of Ahab's line. And he does that job. In fact, in, in some ways, he, he, he seems to go a little bit too far, quite honestly. He, he gets caught up in it. And if you notice, he kills not only Ahab's line, but also his friends, his distant, like married into the family type of relatives. Like, like he gets, he gets a, little, a little crazy. But be that as it may, Jehu does complete the prophecy spoken of by Elijah that all the house of Ahab would fall. And notice what verse 10 of chapter 10 says. There, as, a, as, as Jehu says there, he says, Know now that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke by his servants, Elijah. 
What's more is we see that, that Baal worship is actually removed from Israel. In fact, from this point on, the northern ten tribes will not worship Baal ever again. Like, he does away with it, which is amazing. It's an amazing accomplishment that he does. And unfortunately, we're going to see Judah is going to worship Baal, but Israel will not. And even, even if he was a bit crazy, he has the longest rule, again, of any of the kings of Israel. He reigns for 28 years, and there as he reigns, he does, he does you know, well, I mean, as far as, he does mostly well, I would say, as far as the kings of the northern ten tribes go. But there is that sad however there that we see in verse 29. Though he did away with Baal worship, and though he removes Ahab's line, he was obedient. He was obedient to bring about the word of the Lord, his, his call on his life, his plan that he was supposed to walk in. He did it. He walked in it. He completed the mission. So much so that God, we see, you know, what does he say? He says, you will have a king from your line on the throne to the fourth generation. Like Jehu was set up to do well. He was set up to continue on and do well. But it says there in verse 31, what does it say? It says that Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord, God of Israel, with all of his heart. We've seen this play out consistently through 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Again, the theme of these, these two books, which are one book in the Hebrew, we know, is the faithful and the failing. Because we see both of those play out. We see the faithful and we see the failing. And the failing often start out faithful. They often start out faithful in the beginning. Jehu was faithful in the beginning. He was faithful to accept the role that God had given him, to accept the position that God had given him. And he started on the task, and he started on it with zeal. And at first, he, he was doing exactly what God had said. A little bit later, he gets, again, crazy. But he did what God instructed. He brought God's will about. He worked it out. And he would have been a great king. He would have been a good king for Israel, except for that however. Except for the however there, that though he doesn't worship Baal, he doesn't put away the idols that were set up in Dan and Bethel. And so what he does is, again, he forgets God's word. God's word that is always true. God's word that is always true and true to come to pass. God's word that says, hey, if you follow me, you'll do well. And if you don't, there's consequences. If you follow the way that I've told you to go, if you turn not from, to the right or to the left, if you go in the way that I want to lead you, hey, you'll do good, you'll do well, you'll be faithful, there'll be blessing, you will see me work. But if you go to the right or to the left, in Jehu's case, as he continued to worship there, those idols set up at Dan and Bethel, God's word still came to pass. God's word still came to pass that said, hey, you didn't follow me. You didn't follow the way that I prescribed for you to. And we see that Jehu, man, he has a horrible ending. He has a horrible ending there. He doesn't do well. He doesn't finish well. He is counted as the failing because God's word that always comes to pass, he said, ah, I'm gonna reject that. I'm gonna reject that word spoken all the way back in Exodus where it first says, you should have no God before me. There in the first of the Ten Commandments, it says, you have no God before me. And indeed, he got rid of that. Remember, he took care of Baal worship. He got rid of that. But then it says, you will not have an image of me. You will not create an image of me. And so what he does is he forgets that commandment of the Lord. That one commandment that says, hey, you will not set up an idol. You're not creating an image 
to resemble me, to represent me. He forgets the word, but the word still holds true. And it does us well tonight, guys. It does us well tonight as we end this out, as we finish out tonight to remember that hey, God's word is true. That God's word is right. And God's word, again, calls each of us into a life with the Lord that we walk with him, that we are called to live with him in the role, the position, the place that he has us in. And we're to do it his way, knowing that his word leads us and guides us. And it is true, always. And again, what that should do, the two things it should do for us, it should excite us and it should exhort us. It should excite us to know that we are with the Lord and his word is true, but it should exhort us to do life his way. It should exhort us to walk in the truth of the word that is written to us and for us to live by, knowing that not a word of it will fail. Jehu knew that. Jehu proclaimed that. He saw that not a word of God failed, and not a word of God fails today, friends. Not a word of God fails today. Not a word of God will fail tomorrow. Not a word of God will fail forever. God's word is true. And his words to us and about us and for us and for this world, they will come to pass. They have to because God said it and God is true and God is right. And so for us tonight, it's up to us to look at the word, to look at the word of God and to look at God's word to us and for us and to say, hey, Am I living according to believing that it is true? Am I living in a way that says, yeah, I believe the word and that it's true and that it's for me to live by or am I living you know, my own way? Have I forgotten that God's word is absolutely true? Have I forgotten that God's word is absolutely true and the things in it are true for my life? The reality that what I, what I sow, I'm gonna reap. God's word says that. And so I want to be sowing to spiritual things so as to reap to eternal life. I don't want to be sowing to corruption in the flesh so as to reap more corruption in more flesh. I want to sow to the Spirit. I want to sow to the work of God and to where His Word leads me so that I see God lead and God's Word come to pass in my life and in this world around me. And so for us, that's, that's what we're called to, to trust God's Word to know what's written for us, to know that it's true for us, and that we get to follow it, and we get to see God work in our lives and through our lives as we do so. Let's pray.